0: Welcome to psychology.fm, the podcast about cycling culture, sport, and passion. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and we're here to put the psych back in cycling. So let's get psyched.
1: A little bit of pain never hurt anybody, if you know what I mean. I'm
2: talking about a glass of beer.
0: For episode 19, we have two titans of the bike industry. Stan Day is the co founder of SRAM. He led this incredible company as CEO for like 150 years? That's in bike years, of course. It's more like 35 in human years. But in 2019, Stan handed the reins of his company, which had become a dominant force in our sport, to Ken Lausberg, who brought a ton of manufacturing experience. So these are my guests for this episode. We talk about how SRAM got started in the late 80s and how this startup took on the Japanese juggernaut that was and is Shimano. We recount the many acquisitions SRAM has made in becoming a company that produces pretty much everything except frames. And I offer some great ideas about how they might one day design an electric mountain biking system. You know, if they ever decide to play in that space. Stan and Ken, welcome to Psychology.fm. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right, guys. First question. Actually, I'm going to give you guys two different options of our traditional first question here. Either did you ride today or what was your best ride of this year so far.
2: So I think that we both rode today and our best ride of the year so far was we just came back from riding in Portugal and we had some great time there with the Ingama Tour Group.
0: Was, so that was a, a road tour, I'm assuming?
2: It was a road tour. It was fabulous.
1: Six days in a row in, in the mountains of Portugal.
0: In the mountains of Portugal. Nice. I actually, I did a ride on Zwift today because I'm actually recovering from a fractured wrist. And so I got to re-ride the 2015 World Championship course in Richmond, Virginia for about the 1000th
1: time. So <laughs> that was that was my ride today. I've done that one a lot. Are you guys Zwifters? Oh yeah, I've during the pandemic I rode that course so many times. Yeah, it's a
0: good one. I actually did, I also noted on today's ride that I'm approaching level 47 of 50 on Zwift. Any idea what your level is currently?
1: (laughs) Mine must not be very good because I don't keep track of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't actually either, to be honest with you. Like, it's just something I looked up and noticed. Have you guys, we've had Eric Min on the show before. You guys know Eric. Yeah. You know, I have to say, like, I, I really like the company and the product. I just, I have to say, I haven't bought into the idea that indoor cycling is kind of its own cycling discipline. You know, Those who have drunk the Kool-Aid over there are kind of really pushing that. And I have to say, for me, indoor is really just a bridge between the days that I'm riding outside. It's not, I don't consider it like one of the cycling disciplines that I do. I mean, I do them all. What are your guys' feelings on indoor?
2: I view it as a bridge too, not a discipline in and of itself, but it's a great bridge. I mean, there are a lot of times, when I don't want to be outside.
1: Yeah, I I view it as... I'm really thankful for it because I do have a lot more fun when I have to ride inside. But I I think of it as when I have to ride inside, not when I get to ride inside. And so <laughs> it's great when I need to distinction. use it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's jump into another amazing company, SRAM. <laughs> so, you know, I deliberately didn't do a lot of like Googling about the company before this interview because I've had a perception of the company having been in in the industry for so long and i just wanted to kind of tell you like what my experience with the brand was from like the very early days and how, kind of how accurate it is so i was working at a bike shop in tucson arizona while i was going to school at the university of arizona i was a mountain biker and i still actually remember when the kind of the drivetrain duopoly of the time for Mountain, was like Shimano and Suntour, right? Like Suntour had those top bar, you know, thumb shifters, right? So, and then I actually just remember like Suntour just going away all of a sudden. And there was like a moment there where it was like a Shimano monopoly. And I'm thinking this is right around 92 or 93. And then, and again, it's just, you know, it was so long ago. So then I just remember SRAM coming in with the grip shift and, That's really kind of my my recollection of the original mountain bike drivetrain wars. So what do I have kind of right and wrong about that period and and where SRAM entered the scene?
2: Yeah, so SRAM entered the scene in 1988. We started the company in 87 and we started the company with road shifters. And I had this view that we were going to take over the road market, the road shifting market, because at that time all the shifting was done on the downtube. That product didn't do so well. My brother got us onto the mountain bike side, and we struggled for a few years with a shifter that had a larger diameter than optimal, and the rotation wasn't quite short as cyclists wanted. But then we finally got to the second generation of our mountain bike product, and that's where it really took off. And it took off, interestingly, took off first as a defining product, a defining shifting system on hybrids. And then it migrated over to the mountain bike side and then started being a dominant portion of the mountain bike shifting specification.
0: So what year did that second generation kind of hit the mountain bike market then?
2: Well, the second generation hit in, I think it was 1991. And that year Trek was our lead customer. Our largest customer, and they, I think they bought about 150,000 systems for their hybrids. We actually, with the other customers, we actually shipped about 250,000. The next year, we shipped 500,000 systems, then 2 million, then 5 million, then 8.5 million systems in 1996. It was, it was an amazing growth period.
0: Yeah, I think I can explain some of my inaccuracies there or, or yeah. misperceptions by. The nature of the bike shop that I worked at was called Bargain Basement Bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, it was very much like our whole, you know, bread and butter was selling these like $200 mountain bikes to college freshmen. That really kind of, you know, August pretty much sustained us for the entire year. But all the people who worked at the shop, of course, were just like, you know, hardcore mountain bikers for the most part. We had some roadies too, but most of us were like mountain bikers. And we were just there for the, you know, the access and the discounts yeah. <laughs> so that we could actually like afford this sport yeah. being in college. But yeah, I do remember, I mean, I, I remember switching over to, to Grip Shift right around that time and I remember it, it, it working pretty well. So it sounds like, you know, it was a bit of a rocky start then. Were there some moments, <laughs> you know, as an entrepreneur myself, I, I've had a number of near-death experiences. Did, did you have a couple of those there in the late 80s where you thought maybe, maybe that we're not going to actually make it?
2: I wouldn't call it near-death experience, but I think maybe a funny one was my original business plan to start the company and to get everybody out of their nice, safe jobs was we're going to sell 100,000 systems our first year. And we actually sold 800 systems. So I was short by about 99,200 systems to my business plan. Fortunately, that wasn't a near-death experience, but it certainly wasn't on track.
0: Nice. Yeah, got to get back to the drawing board on your projections with those, huh?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right, so let's fast forward then, like up to 2019, and the you know the succession of yourself, Stan, and and Ken stepping in, and then we'll we'll kind of bookend this thing with those two big moments. Talk a little bit about that transition and how that went at the time.
2: Well, it was terrific. One of the things that I was thinking about for a long time after leading the company for 25 to almost 30 years was I wanted to pass the baton while I was still running full speed. And so we started looking for my successor, probably we started talking about it internally in probably in 2015. And then we got concerted about looking for what turned out to be Ken. <laughs> and I think it was a 2017. I think that's right. I think that's it and and we're just super fortunate to have found Ken with this wide variety of experience of leading a larger organization of the size that we aspired to grow into that had a very technical skill set and most importantly was you know really a terrific fit with our culture and i think our culture has been one of the, the real strengths of the organization and how we've grown over the years and so it's great to have Ken come on as COO, oh, learn the business over an 18-month period, and then hand the ball off to him, and I retired to the bleachers. <laughs> the bleachers is a great place to be.
0: <laughs> how did taking the reins go for you, Ken? You had like a couple years under your belt, right, to kind of figure things out first?
1: Yeah, it, you know, we've talked to quite a few people about Stan and my transition, and I don't know how it could have gone better. And I'd give, you know, so much of the credit to Stan and and the way he prepared the team for the transition. You know, we're just a super transparent company and and so, you know, the entire leadership team knew Stan's plans and and were a part of it. So there wasn't, you know, that shock to the system. And then, you know, I guess if you have to choose EQ over IQ, you know, our EQ match is is very, very close. And I just felt like it was a nearly, I mean, basically a perfect fit from day one for me personally. And, you know, so then it was nice to hear that that was reciprocal. And so it just really went well. I think Stan and I are both, you know, pretty low key, low ego people. And so there just wasn't, you know, any kind of oddity about the transition. It was just it was really smooth and fun.
0: I mean, it does strike me like as somewhat similar to the Steve Jobs, Tim Cook, you know, the founder, and then a more operations oriented CEO. Is that not really uh, an accurate comparison?
2: You know, I think it is in the sense of Tim Cook did really well, and it's hard. It's yeah. certainly hard to follow in Steve Jobs' <laughs> footsteps, but neither Ken or I are the Steve Jobs management style. And so it's different in that way. I mean, we're very collaborative. We really focus on empowering the team. And I think that was different than the brilliant leadership that Steve Jobs exhibited. And And it was impressive that Tim Cook was able to take that handoff and bring in a, a different approach and continue to grow the company as well as he has. It's awesome to see.
0: So I've often described the job as the CEO as, as being three things, set the vision, put the resources in place to execute that vision and then get out of the way. So in that first one, that first thing of, of setting the vision for the company, Stan, that had obviously always been your job since, since day one. Is that something that has been completely handed off to Ken or is the vision for the company still something that you guys share?
2: You know, we call it our purpose, not our vision, but it's something that Ken and I are very much aligned on And to the extent that it evolves over time, we'll continue to be aligned on it. But it's Ken's job now to to address that on a daily basis. And my job to be in the bleachers and watch how well he does. So how would you
0: you articulate the SRAM vision here in, in 2022 or purpose, if you're more comfortable with that?
1: Our purpose is very clear to our team. We... Basically, before every large meeting, we remind ourselves of our purpose, which is we believe in the power of bicycles and expanding the potential of cycling. We create manufactured components that inspire cyclists. You know, that, that hasn't changed for several years. There may be some tweaks, you know, that we may make some minor modifications to that purpose with a word or two, some wordsmithing, but our purpose is very clear. The other thing that I would say has been incredibly consistent over the 35 years or so are the values of the company. And so I wouldn't articulate us as being a vision, you know, driven company but more of a purpose and values based, you know, driven company.
0: So then talk to me a little bit about those values that guide the company.
1: Our values are integrity, innovation, collaboration, passion, commitment and inclusivity. You know, we have descriptions of, of what those words mean exactly to us as a team. And and we review it at least once a year to make sure that they really reflect, you know, what we do and what we're about. And so between our purpose statement and our values, you know, it really, I think, helps us stay on track to who we are.
2: And it's, it's interesting as, you know, going through business school and growing up, you know, the concept of integrity was was always part of my upbringing but it's been amazing to build a global organization from scratch and to be super aware of the importance of integrity and the fact that if we didn't have integrity that global organization would be a chocolate mess you know we've got a team of 5000 people around the world that are running the same dance step, that enjoy working with each other, that trust each other, that believe in the future, and all of that's built on the foundation of integrity.
1: And that, yeah, extends to the culture of the company, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I I really think you can, if you hang hang out in a, a SRAM location, you can see the values, you know, just in action. It's impossible not to see the passion. It's impossible not to see the collaboration. It's impossible not to see the innovation. The one change, you know, these I think have been the same, you know, for several years as well. The only real change was we had the concept of inclusivity, you know, throughout some of our, our values, but felt really strongly, you know, over the past several months or actually a little over a year that we needed to be much more explicit about inclusivity. So that was, that was added explicitly, you know, recently, but otherwise it's just, it's the same. All right. One of the things that it seems like SRAM has been
0: very good at is making acquisitions and then integrating those companies. Like you've grown quite a bit over the years through acquisition. Can you give me kind of a, maybe a quick timeline for some of those bigger deals over the years that have now you know, kind of added up to what SRAM
2: is? Sure. So our first acquisition was the SACS Bicycle Component Division in 1997. And that was a super exciting one because with that, we've got, we got this group of this development organization, German engineers that were working on both internal gear hubs, as well as uh, what we call external drivetrain, drivetrains that we use today. And prior to that, with CripShift, the design and the manufacturing was all injection molded plastic. And we didn't really understand how to bash or process metal. And our German team really knew how to do that well. And so it was great to have that acquisition. I think it it took a few years to get integrated. We were crazy Americans coming into a hundred and five-year-old German Bicycle tradition, and I, I think we had to get to know each other and and trust each other. We did over time, and really, when you look at a lot of the development that's going on today on the mountain bike side, a lot of that's led by our crew in Germany. I mean, their creativity, their knowledge, their execution is just absolutely tremendous. So, the Sachs bicycle component division was the first one. The second one was RockShox. I think that was two thousand two or 2003. And we did Avid and Truvative in 2004 and Zip in 2007. And those acquisitions really built out all the basic components on the bike. We were really buying capability. We weren't buying revenue. And in all of those situations, we've been able to add those development organizations to SRAM, figure out how to work together and then accelerate the development of products to grow the organization. I think that when you look at a a lot of acquisition scenarios, there's heavy consolidation going on in the entities. We've kept every location that we've acquired because we believe in the people and not everybody wants to move to Chicago. So
0: (laughs) nice. I mean, integrating acquired companies is a skill that a company has to build. It's like a, it's a muscle that not all companies have, so it's pretty amazing that you've done that, and, and that you've done so many. Really, there looks like looks like there was a period there in the 2000s where, you know, it was probably just a, a natural consolidation period. It looks like.
1: Personally, I, I don't think what we've done is really resembles consolidation so much. You know, it's the reality. At least since I've been here, the companies that have become part of the SRAM, you know. Team, they've really sought us out. They've come to us saying, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we joined you? And I personally think a big part of the reason of that is the founder and the original team, they're innovators, right? They have ideas, they want to drive innovation, but they don't necessarily want to develop the channel. They don't necessarily want to do manufacturing, they don't want to do the administration. And so, you know, being able to join SRAM as innovators where we're super passionate about innovation, that the, you know, you get to do what you want to do and really see your ideas grow, you know, much, much faster than than they would if if you had to do everything. And so, you know, there there's so many companies out there that, you know, it's not a consolidation play for us. It's so much about the people and being able to you know, let their ideas run faster.
0: Okay. I can appreciate not not wanting to, you know, be categorized or classified as consolidation. I guess my reason for calling it that is that it just does seem difficult to build a standalone company these days in the cycling industry. You know, it's just like the as an entrepreneur, I looked at it a number of times. I wanted to be in the cycling industry. I ended up going into software. It was just so much bigger, right? I had so much like more, more room for error, I guess, and, and potential. And that's kind of like why I feel like, you know, I mean, companies like Fox, you know, suspension, like they've obviously got all their automotive stuff to kind of, you know, support the company. They're not a pure play cycling company. And, you know, even Shimano has other, other product lines outside cycling. SRAM, I think, is pretty unique, I guess, in, in being a pure cycling company company, but it has taken a lot of other companies combined to sustain that. That's my view. Do I have that right or wrong? What would you say about those thoughts?
1: You know, if you look at our revenue today, you know, the acquired revenue versus the innovated revenue, you know, acquired is around 10% or so of our total revenue. And so we, again, we don't think of it as, you know, the Acquiring revenue, we really think of it as adding talent to our team in areas that we don't have today, and you know people that have the same values, that spirit of innovation. it's very much about the people versus you know acquiring
2: revenue for us for sure. Yeah, and you, you go back and you look at each one of the acquisitions that we've done, Each one of those was a startup. Now, Sachs was a startup back in 1895. but, <laughs> but Rockshock started at the same time that we did. You know zip started in the mid nineties you know Mickey started truevative in the late nineties you know each one of those was a startup and then was at a point in its maturing cycle it was thought that it would be better in a with a larger organization and we're pleased to be that and some of those innovators some of those entrepreneurs did a great job building the organization and just felt hey it's time for me to hand it off and we encourage everybody out there to start a business, grow it, and then knock on our door. Nice. I would like to hear that.
0: It certainly worked out for the consumer, right? I mean, SRAM makes some of the best products. Actually, I wrote an article for Forbes about the best mountain biking innovations of the last decade. And two of those were SRAM. One was the one-by drivetrain, which has transformed mountain biking, and then the dropper post, Rock Shock dropper post, right? Like those two just have had such a massive impact. If you guys had to pick a third from that decade, what would you guys pick for your third big innovation in any discipline of cycling? Doesn't have to be mountain biking.
2: I think the wireless ETAP drivetrain, both mountain and road. And what year did that come out in like 19 or 18? No, no, earlier that was like 2010, 2012. I think was our first ETAP.
1: Okay. Really? Oh yeah. Not AXIS. Etap. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. AXIS
1: would have been about 2018 or so. But yeah, if you think of the mechanic or the, you know, the person at home, the triathlete, not having all those cables to route when you rebuild your bike has really been transformational and the, just the response and all of that. I I would put the same. Yeah.
0: All right. Somehow. I don't know if I, I have to go back and look. You
2: can rewrite the article.
0: Yeah. I'm going to have to do a, a revision on that.
1: And, you know, when you put us on the spot like this, you know, we have a lot of team members that work really hard. And so you're like, man, I don't want to leave out what the zip team has come up with, you know, they've done some amazing things and, you know, it's just, it's really hard to put us on the spot and say, Hey, what's your
2: favorite, your fa- favorite
0: child. Yeah. yeah. Favorite child syndrome.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I I just love what our, it's so much fun to go through our halls and, and see what team members are working on. You know, you started this with, did you ride your bike today? I rode my bike today with some really cool stuff on it that I hadn't seen before. <laughs> and so that was my bike ride this morning, getting to ride something that somebody else might get to ride someday. And so it's really hard to pick, you know, what our favorites are.
0: I mean, Would you describe SRAM as, a, as an entrepreneurial company still?
1: Is that how you operate? Very, very much so. You know, the entrepreneurial spirit runs all the way through the company. You know, our our team members are, they get a lot of leeway on product ideas, continuous improvement ideas, you know, what we can do to, to make the ride better, what we can do to make the company better, the team better. It's a, I think the entrepreneurial spirit is another one of those things that makes SRAM such a special place.
2: Yeah, we have thousands of entrepreneurs lightly harnessed and all going in the same direction aligned with our purpose. It's pretty powerful.
0: So how would you advise an entrepreneur who wanted to start a company in the cycling industry today? I mean, is there, is there still some white space out there to be explored?
1: For sure. Personally, I think there's, there's an infinite number of ideas that haven't been thought of yet, which would imply that there's infinite amount of white space, you know, for us, what you just said, if we started believing that innovation was over, that we'd come up with all of the good ideas and that we were set, to me, that's the day that everybody's going to start beating us. And so I think we're we're really confident that there's endless ideas out there, whether they're our ideas or you know, a young startup company that's coming up with a new idea. I think that it's infinite.
0: So where then do you see most of the growth in cycling coming from? over like the next 10 years? Where are the big opportunities for growth and and
1: entrepreneurship
0: in general, kind of broadly?
1: I mean, personally, I think if you think of the power of bicycles today, I think the world needs bicycles today more than it's ever needed them, you know, in the 205 years or, or however long bikes have been around. They're just such a perfect solution for physical and mental health, for the environment, you know, for the the commuting in, in congested cities. There's just so much wind at our back, at our industry's back. I just think we all need to, you know, to put up those big sails and take advantage of it and not blow it, not blow the opportunity. And one of the, the key areas that I'm really passionate about that is, you know, we we were gifted millions of new cyclists during the pandemic millions more than we would have been able to get without the pandemic. And so, you know, I hope every listener that listens to your your show is a welcoming, you know, person to new cyclists that have just taken it up and that they really bring them in and and welcome them with open arms because they're the people that are going to, you know, vote for dedicated bike lanes and and things that we all want. And so I I just think there's so much opportunity, so much more than there was 2 years
2: ago. I totally agree, and I, I think some of the innovation that we're seeing out there today is, it just continues. And an interesting area that is to me is amazing is the whole cargo bike field. And it's small and niche today, but the ability for people to innovate in that area is just is extraordinary. And you go back, you just go back a few years. Remember when gravel started, and look at where it is today. I mean, the innovation that occurs in the industry, both in terms of hardware, but also in terms of people's interest is is extraordinary. Well, my brother's leading out in in Africa with World Bicycle Relief is, is a huge thing as well. I mean, the whole continent of Africa benefits so much from an explosion of bicycles. And where the bicycles are being provided, you see this huge increase in productivity and livelihood. It is a tremendous tool that we have, and we're very lucky to be in the bike industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, before this interview, I was I was thinking about the listeners of this podcast and the crazy fact that probably somewhere between ninety nine and a hundred percent of the people listening to this are either using a SRAM product currently or have used a SRAM product. Like that's how ubiquitous SRAM is in the industry. It's it's pretty incredible. So I did mention earlier, you know, there was that kind of like moment in the early 90s where where Shimano had a a bit of a monopoly in the mountain bike drivetrain world it's actually also worth mentioning that you guys all had a bit of a monopoly there for a while with 1by there was just a time where like Shimano didn't have an answer to that and it was like where are they you know and it just <laughs> i can't believe how long it took them to to finally get there but like for a period there it's like all mountain bikes had SRAM 1by drivetrains as far as i could see So there was like those, but now it feels like in the e-mountain bike category, it seems like Shimano is is kind of doing that again a bit. I mean, there are some other players for sure, but I've seen them come on like really strong in that category. Does SRAM have any plans to kind of maybe restore
1: some balance to that market? Well, I mean, we participate in the e-mountain bike market today with our drivetrain and our suspension, as you know. And those systems work with Bosch and, you know, everybody else's systems. You know, as far as the e-motor itself, you know, I mean, we're always looking at how can we make the ride better? How can we make it more fun for the rider? And, you know, if we can come up with a way to do that in a unique and better way, we'll, we'll do it. So, you know, we're, we're always exploring that, but, you know, we'll see where it goes.
2: Yeah,
0: no, I know it's deliberately kind of putting you guys on the spot on that one because I've heard you don't actually have to shift, which sounds really enticing. A nice value proposition there for an e-motor on a mountain bike where you don't actually have to shift the bike. It's kind of an automatic electric drivetrain. So you might want to consider something like that.
2: What's <laughs> a good idea? You know, one... <laughs> Well, one of the things I think that's important, you know, when you go through business school, they talk about the first mover advantage and all that, all that kind of stuff. Being first to market's important. And I think that's an interesting advantage. But we've been able to demonstrate, I think, over the years as well, that sometimes we've been first, one buy was an example, but oftentimes we have not been first. But if you can make a better product, the market, and you can present it properly, the market will take it and run with it. And we've seen that happen so many times. So, I like Ken's Ken's thought if we can come up with a better system we'll bring it to market and we won't bring it to market if if we can't come up with something better.
0: Okay, so let's go more generally then. Like what are your thoughts about just kind of like the whole e-bike category across the board, mountain bikes, commuter bikes, you you mentioned like the cargo bikes. How do you guys feel about those for the for the industry?
1: It's been
2: massive it's for massive. the industry, expanding the potential of cycling. I mean, it is just It's incredible. We're on this bike ride. We're in Portugal. We have 14 people on the bike ride. Three were riding e-road bikes. And so we had three people participating that would never, ever have had the opportunity to participate with us because they were on the e-bike. And they were, it's a people experience. And we had three people that that otherwise couldn't be there. It was fabulous.
1: Yeah. And you know, before, when I was saying that, you know, the bike solves so many of the world's problems today. You know, adding an e-motor to that just, you know, makes the audience that much bigger, that much more access to all of that. And so, I think, you know, e-systems have have really come a long way, but I really think it's all at its infancy, really, at this point. There's just so oh, much more still. to come. Oh, yeah. Wow. For sure.
0: Yeah. yeah. Do you guys remember very clearly the first time you pedaled an e bike of any type for sure pinpoint that it's it really is like that there it's an experience that I mean because I can too I know exactly you know what the bike was where I was and just that that feeling that kind of superhuman feeling that you get when you first push the pedal and it like just goes and you're just like I mean all these thoughts flood in like and I remember like in my office I'd I would make like as many people who would come out like just go take it so that I would be credited with being the first person that put them on a e-bike, right? Like, and they would always remember me. It was a little selfish in that that respect, (laughs) but because that experience was so profound and memorable, right?
1: Yeah. I I have kind of a funny story that's kind of related to that, that... So, you know, prior to joining SRAM, I was living in Switzerland and I loved a mountain bike. So it's a pretty good place to be in mountain bike, but I would oftentimes get so frustrated because I thought I was in decent shape. You know, I'm not a great hill climber, but I liked it and I'd be climbing up a mountain and, you know, somebody 30 or 40 years older than me would pass me and, you know, be able to talk to me as they went past me. And then they'd be up on top of the mountain, you know, having a snack. And I'm like, how are they in such good shape? You know, it's impossible. Like, I felt like I was so inferior and I didn't know e bikes existed. Of course, they were there already. And so I was getting passed by these e mountain bikes, not knowing they were mountain bikes or e mountain bikes. And so then I, finally rode one and i mean they're they are a smile maker for sure <laughs> smile maker for sure Babe,
2: you rode one and then you bought one
1: <laughs> i did buy one I, I had to be able to keep up all the beer would be gone if i rode up on my analog yeah
0: so your first experience was actually a humbling one
1: oh yeah with, for with, sure the bikes well yeah. I, I would say my first 25 you know i'm not that smart i i didn't figure it out and kind of almost embarrassingly late that i finally went into a bike shop and figured it
0: out. My 12 year old has, has an e-bike and she, you know, rides it all over town. Like that's how she and her friends get around. It's, it's pretty, they all got it for Christmas last year and that's just their, that's their freedom. Cause they're, you know, I'm in Park City, Utah, so pretty it's hilly. pretty hilly. So just riding a regular pedal bike, even though of course we did it on single speeds BMX bikes back when we were growing up, you know,
1: and didn't complain that much, but yeah, it makes her a lot more independent and mobile. I definitely think it it fits into the N plus one category. You know, if you have 10 mechanical bikes, you'd probably need at least one electrical bike. They are fun.
0: So let's look back on this year in cycling. What would you guys say was kind of the the biggest moment for cycling in 2022? Like just, just broadly, like what has stood out for you?
1: For me, I, I would have to back it up a little bit further you know because for us the from when the pandemic happened to today has felt like either one really long year one really short year or something but it's defied time for sure but it's been one thing and so you know for me the most defining thing for us was we went into the pandemic thinking that that our sales were going to drop off you know fairly significantly so we prepared the team for that you know made sure our team knew that we thought it would be temporary, we weren't going to do layoffs, we we're going to keep innovating. You know, I felt like we really went into it prepared, you know, conservatively. And then we were completely wrong, right? We we predicted this downturn and it was actually this full gas upslope. But the pandemic was real, right? We had team members working in environments where you know COVID was was running rampant. And so To me, the most memorable thing is, you know, the daily meeting, global meetings with our team leaders going through what their situation was with the pandemic, being able to, you know, essentially double production through that while keeping our team safe. I'm just so thankful and proud of our our leaders around the world that were able to pull that off. Our team members were truly safer when they were at SRAM than when they were anywhere else during the pandemic. And I know I won't forget that. That's really special.
2: My most memorable time I think would have been two weeks ago getting getting back over to our European facilities and visiting our Schweinfurt Development Center for the first time in three years. I mean, the smiles on my face, the smiles on everybody else's faces. Great, we're reconnected again. And then getting to our Portugal facility and seeing all the wonderful changes that they had executed. Those first visits are fabulous. We had a guy that just walked in the office this morning from our Ireland facility. hadn't seen him. He hadn't been back for three years. And the smile on his face is huge. We're starting to get connected again, and it's great.
0: So is everybody, are you guys like a return to the office company right now? Everybody across the board?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it makes sense for SRAM. There's just so much
1: in-person collaboration required, right? Yeah, it's high intensity, you know, from a cross-functional standpoint, you know, our design engineers don't design in a vacuum, you know, they're they're surrounded with the with the whole, you know, value stream team, and so that's such a high collaboration need and environment. We got through it in the pandemic, but it was really hard. You know, enormous hours worked by our team to you know, to keep that going, you know, just being able to do it by video. But now having people back together, is just a different energy level.
0: So it seems like that kind of period in the 2000s was just like a a time of consolidation in the cycling industry and, and SRAM was really kind of driving that
1: forward. Is that accurate? You know, I came from a company that did a lot of consolidation that really, really consolidated an industry. And, you know, my vantage point, what we've done at SRAM isn't a consolidation strategy, really pretty far from it, but more of a adding to the team. If you look at the acquisitions that we've done, kind of really outside of SACS, maybe the entrepreneur sought us out and wanted to join us. I think mostly because they wanted to innovate and didn't want to do the other things. And so acquisitions for us have been really adding to our team, adding talent and innovation to our team, not so much, you know, a traditional consolidation of revenue and, you know, the kind of the traditional view of of consolidation. So it's for us, it's really been about the people.
0: And there, I mean, there certainly still are a lot of companies in the bike industry. It seems (laughs) like when you're a cyclist and you're an entrepreneur, oftentimes it's just unavoidable. It's just like you wouldn't you could go outside the industry and maybe do something that was more lucrative, but it's just what you want to do. You just want to be in the industry. You want to be innovating here. And, you know, as long as you can, you know, pay the rent, (laughs) then you're just going to, you're just going to keep going forward.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's certainly the advantage of, of an industry like ours, where so many of the people are just absolutely passionate about what we do and the products that we make. And, And all of that, it's for sure everyone should be paid fairly and all of that. But it's, you know, we do it because we love it and it makes our rides better too. So it's a blast.
0: Well, Stan and Ken, thanks so much for joining us on psychology.fm.
1: Thank you. It was great talking to you.
0: Thanks for listening to the psychology.fm podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at psychology.fm, that's C-Y-C-O-L-O-G-Y.fm, where we'll provide exclusive content about bikes, gear, trends, and upcoming episodes.